Uh, and someone had, I don't remember who, but someone from First Service had asked if they could get my PowerPoint. Um, so just so you know, probably sometime tomorrow or something, I'll save that into a PDF format and it'll be uploaded onto my website. So if, if you want that for whatever reason, that's, uh, that's cool too. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for, for who you are, God. We thank you for what you are uh, doing in the world today. And we just uh, pray, Father, that you would really spur us into action to partner with you, God. We just thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, this church body, this family. Um, and we pray, Lord, that you just be with us this morning as we dive into your word, dive into your heart, and uh, hopefully dive into action, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, I'm still cooling down um, from between uh, between the, my sunburn that I got yesterday and uh, the stage heat and Pete constantly yelling for more cowbell. I kind of kind of feel a little warm. Uh, um, the the topic we're going to talk about this morning is one that's not only near and dear to my heart, but also what I can almost promise you is the most exciting topic you will hear all year, <laughs> or maybe the rest of your life. Um, and it's an old topic. It's one that's been going on for quite a while now, um, but we're just in a, a, an incredible season um, in, this, in this topic, and so I want to share this with you. Um, it's uh, talking about the fourth wave of missions, all right? Uh, so we're going from commission to, to completion here. Um, give or take 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus kind of laid down a, a, a challenge for us, a task for us, and we've been uh, kind of on and off that task, um, more off than on usually, um, for the better part of 2,000 years. Um, Recently, in the, in the modern age of missions, there's been three historical waves of missions, and we're kind of coming up into to the fourth. Uh, and so this is a, an amazing topic, and uh, I'm going to try to be as, as like fiery and, and animated and, and passionate as possible. That's not my personality, um, but it might help this morning because it's really important that you catch this fire <laughs> and move forward with it and hopefully are even more passionate uh, than I am about it. Um, uh, so with that, we'll, we'll get started here. Um, there are, is a lot of like, uh, there's a lot of data in these first couple slides. So again, if don't feel like you need to like furiously write on your notepad and, and get writer's cramp or anything, you can get the, the slideshow later if you want. Hopefully you can see this. I apologize if the font is kind of small. Um, but the four waves of modern missions, we're going to look at, at history here, and I'll give you a, a really brief overview of the last 2,000 years of church history, okay? And it, it really, really briefly. Somewhere around 30 to 33 A.D., uh, Jesus left. Um, he began his, his ministry, but he left it for us to complete. And when he left, he told his disciples, you know, go and make disciples. Um, you are to multiply yourselves. And uh, he said, begin in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then go out to the uttermost parts of the earth. And uh, they heard him. They didn't obey him. They sat in Jerusalem and continued to sit in Jerusalem and continued to sit in Jerusalem. Even after the Holy Spirit had come upon them, they kind of got cozy and comfortable in Jerusalem. And so God, in his, his love and uh, generosity, brought persecution 
in Jerusalem to kick them out of the city so that they would actually get in gear and do what he commanded them to do. And so from roughly 30 to 33 AD to somewhere around uh, 380 AD, we had the, the period of the early church, the New Testament church. The apostles went out and they spread the gospel all over. Um, Peter and Paul were were heavy hitters. Others that were lesser known are Apollos and, and you know, obviously the, the other disciples. Um, and they, they just kind of scattered throughout the known world and began preaching the gospel and, and planting churches. Some of those churches uh, have continued throughout time and some of them due to Islamic invasion and this and that, have uh, ceased to exist and are, we're kind of needing to, to repopulate uh, those areas with Christianity. But nonetheless, during the first 300-some-odd years of early church history, uh, the gospel was going out in power. Um, the Holy Spirit was upon them. Miracles, signs, and wonders were happening. People were getting saved, despite the fact that the persecution was ridiculously heavy during this period of time. The Romans did not like Christianity. It was illegal to be a Christian. And at that point, if you were a Christian, uh, actually called the way at that time, um, if you were a follower of Jesus at that time, that was basically synonymous with being gladiatorial game fodder. Okay? They would throw you in the arena, and you would be eaten by lions or chopped up into bits by a gladiator or hung upside down on a cross or whatever was entertaining at the time. Um, this was not a, a real joyous time to be a Christian, okay? But then around 380 AD, well, first we had Constantine, and he supposedly became a Christian on his deathbed, and he then legalized Christianity. And at that point, while persecution still happened, it became less and less um, because it was no longer officially enforced by the Roman government. But then in 380 AD, Theodosius came into power, in, in the, as a Roman emperor, and he decreed, he saw that the, the rise of popularity in Christianity, and he basically wanted to jump on that bandwagon. He's like, if I want to consolidate my power in, the, in my empire, empire, I need a religion that is going to do that for me. And so he hopped on the Christian, Christianity bandwagon. Not only was it legal at that point to be one, but then he mandated Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, Okay. Lots of not-so-good things happened during this period um, because Theodosius himself wasn't a believer. He just wanted to use Christianity as a means to his own ends. Uh, he kind of combined Christianity with all the pagan uh, religions of the day, slapped his name on it. There was still emperor worship. There was still idolatry. They still went to temples and made sacrifices. All these things that they were doing during their pagan years, they were now doing it just with a Christian label over it. Okay, so I'm... Uh, Lots of bad things happened when the state took over uh, Christianity. Um, but nonetheless, from about 400 A.D. to about 1500 A.D., we had Catholic Christendom, okay? Catholic Christendom wasn't all there was. There were still pockets throughout the Roman Empire of what we would call biblical Christianity or you know, remnants of, of the early church. However, during this period, the Catholic Church uh, made it their... Their, one of their main priorities to kill any any person who did not conform to their version of Christianity, okay? Um, so lots of horrific things happened during this period. Lots of very unbiblical practices became popular during this period. But nonetheless, the, the some of the basics of, of Christianity remained. Um, but then uh, around 1500, Martin Luther came onto the scene, and him being a part of the Catholic Church 
actually part of the monastic order. He was a missionary within the Catholic Church. He wanted to revive the Catholic Church, bring it back to biblical Christianity, and, uh, and reform it. However, uh, principle of old wineskins and all, the Catholic Church didn't want to have anything to do with it, uh, so they ostracized him, excommunicated him, and wanted his head. So he scampered around Europe looking for a safe haven for a few years, um, eventually found it. Uh, Gutenberg Press was invented. He got his material out, and biblical Christianity was kind of rebirthed um, in that season. Okay? But even though he was a missionary, part of the missionary or Sodal um, movement or, or organization within the Catholic Church, for whatever reason, nobody knows why, he rejected missions and focused solely on the, the local church when he formed Protestant Christianity. Okay? So during this period, from about 1500 A.D. to the late 1700s, even though we were returning to biblical teaching and biblical instruction, we, we were leaving out the go part. We were focusing on building churches and, and mentoring and, and discipling people, but we were to, to multiply, we were having to attract people into our building rather than us going to them and making disciples, okay? So for the um, first couple hundred years of, of Protestant Christianity, there was virtually no missions. Uh, it, wasn't even, it wasn't even a mindset that, that, that they recognized. But what happened then is when somebody, the light bulb went off over their head in the late 1700s, and they realized, oh my gosh, you know, we, we left out a really key part of Christianity. What happened was, during this, this time of, of the, the Protestant church, a lot of good teaching was happening. People were getting discipled. They had the DNA. They just had nowhere to express it. There wasn't a multiplicational opportunity for them. And so what happened was once missions got reintegrated into the church, there was a missions explosion. All 300-some years of pent-up evangelistic energy just suddenly got unleashed on the world, and there was a huge mission movement. And that's the beginning of the modern mission era. So really, if you look at missions, there's two key times in all of human history where missions has been active. The early church and today. <laughs> um, and so in modern missions, we have, we've identified three different waves. 1790s to the 1850s was the first wave. And this was the coastlands uh, due to, you know, the transportation technology of the day, which was by boat, took a long time to get there, and so what, what they did was they just put missionaries on a boat, hoping they would eventually reach their destination. They got there, and they would just camp out there in the port city and start sharing the gospel, right? And so they sent boats and ships all over, and so all along the coastlands and in port cities, the gospel of Jesus Christ began to be preached, and people started coming to know the Lord in droves. The second wave hit around the 1850s to the, um, to the 1930s, and this was the second wave popularly called the Inlands. And that's when we realized, okay, we've done a good job of getting to the port cities and on the outskirts of these, these continents. Now we need to start bringing the gospel to the interiors. Um, sorry, I missed noteworthy names in the, in the first wave was, was William Carey. A lot of you are probably familiar with him. Uh, noteworthy names in the second wave then is David Livingston and uh, J. Hudson Taylor. Livingston for uh, Africa and J. Hudson Taylor for China. Two really, uh, they were actually popular. You know, it was kind of like Einstein actually made science popular. You know, these guys actually began to make missions popular. Um, they, they went to colleges even and told students 
Put down, lay down your small ambitions. Who cares if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or you know, a professional businessman? That's small potatoes. Stop, drop out of college, and come with us on the mission field. And they did. There was a huge response. And during this second wave, uh, this launched the student volunteer movement, which saw over 100,000 college students go into the mission field. Okay? During this time, this was the, the greatest uh, mobilization of missionaries the world had ever seen. And at the same time, all these students are being launched into the mission field. Um, businessmen start becoming or start like realizing, okay, we got all these people leaving on missions, but no one's supporting them. We've got to come up with finances to fund all of these, these missionaries. And so they began um, uh, forming companies, for-profit companies, solely for the purpose of funding missions. There's a long list of companies that were born in this era, but Dole is one of them. They began selling fruits uh, just to, to send all of their profits onto the mission field. Um, John Deere Tractors is another one. Uh, their, their sole purpose for, for developing the company was that all their profits would go to the mission field. A ton of companies uh, be, uh, came online in this, this season, and a ton of money was being put out onto the mission field. Now, like all things uh, that has waned, uh, Dole right now and John Deere right now are, are not currently functioning in that, in the same way that you know most of the Ivy League schools in America were founded for missions as well, and now they're some of the most atheistic, godless institutions on the face of the planet. Um, but that's not how they started. Um, so that was the second wave. And then in the 1930s, the third wave began. That was about 1930 to roughly the year 2000. And this is... Um, the unreached people group wave. This is when we began realizing, okay, we've sent missionaries to geographic continents, but when Jesus said, go and preach the gospel to all nations, the word nations there is ethne, which is where we get our, our word ethnic or ethnic group or people group from. And they're like, okay, we've, we've gotten this far, but the next logical step is to make sure that every people group is being reached, not just every continent. And so they did the research and, and found that there was roughly 24,000 different people groups in the world today, differentiated by either language or um, culture or geographic location, right? And uh, so they're like, okay, there's 24,000 people groups that we've, that we've discovered. How many of them have actually heard the gospel? And they did that research, and they came up with about 11,500, maybe 12. So in other words, half of the world's people groups have never heard the gospel, okay? So that was in the 1930s. They started recognizing this and like, man, we have got to get the gospel out to every tribe, nation, and tongue, not just every continent, okay? So that was about 70 years um, of, of this wave of, of missions and uh, noteworthy names in this movement, uh, Donald McGavern, Cameron Townsend from uh, Wycliffe, and uh, Ralph Winter, who has recently uh, passed, uh, but incredible um, missionary and missions mobilizer. And now finally, somewhere beginning around the year 2000, ending we don't know when, is now the fourth wave. And the fourth wave is the call to all. all right? And I'll go into uh, some detail on that here in a minute. But noteworthy names, insert yours here. All right, We are right on the cusp of this, and uh, you can get on, on, the, on the front end. All right, 
Same timeline up above, kind of color-coded along the left-hand margin there, showing you uh, the progress of missions, all right? So somewhere around the year 30 AD, Christ had died, arisen, went up to be with the Father, and uh, so there was a small group of, of his disciples at the beginning of, of this whole shebang, right? So roughly 120 were in the upper room at Pentecost, but the population of the world at that time was 170 million. So do the math, that equates to one out of every 1.4 million people on planet Earth had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay, or had uh, received the Lord. So very, very, very small percentage there, 0.00007%. 70 years later, 100 AD, we had gone from 120 Christians to 500,000 Christians, okay? Just, just, I mean, that's pretty good multiplication there. Um, so instead of one out of every 1.4 million, we'd increased to one out of 360 people on the face of the planet had now heard the gospel or were considered believers. That's 0.3%. 900 years later, we went through this nasty shift into Roman Catholicism. Um, we were only at one out of 220. Um, 265 million um, people on the planet, 1.2 million Christians. In 1500 AD, fast forward another 500 years, we're now right in this awkward transition phase between Catholicism and, and Protestant Christianity, and we're up to one out of 69, or 1.5%. In 1900 A.D., now we've blitzed through the first two um, modern waves of missions. Now we're at one out of 27, or 3.7%. Then 1950s, we're now into the third wave, which is now the biggest wave the world has ever seen. 1950, one out of 21. 1980, one out of 11. 1989, one out of 7. 1995, one out of 5. 2003, one out of every three people on the face of the planet has now heard the gospel or has uh, become a believer in Jesus Christ. If you'll notice, during the third wave, each wave, the first, the second, and third, each wave built upon the last and was exponentially more effective than the previous one. So what we see is in the third wave, from 1950 to roughly the year 2000, in those 50 years, more people came to know Jesus than in the previous 1,950 years combined, okay? The last 50 years of missions has been ridiculously effective and ridiculously exciting. And as we saw with the early church, the power of the Holy Spirit was moving. There were signs and wonders and healings and tongues and all these miraculous things happening because the whole point of the Holy Spirit was to equip us to do the mission that God left us to do. And then the Holy Spirit went dormant because we weren't doing missions. Even during the first part of Protestant Christianity, it was dormant. But then as soon as we started engaging in the mission again, as soon as we started going out and doing what Jesus told us to get our butts into gear and do, what do you know? The Holy Spirit shows up and miracles and signs and wonders begin to be normal once again. And it's only increased in frequency and intensity. The last 50 years, there we've seen ridiculous miracles. I mean, I could stand up here for the next six hours and just tell you uh, stories that I personally have encountered on the mission field or from friends that I personally know on the mission field. I mean, it's unbelievable what God is doing. But the point here is that things are moving <laughs> very rapidly in a, in a very specific direction 
And sometimes we, we kind of neglect to, to look at the past to really see where God is going in, in the future. Um, so it's incredibly, incredibly exciting. Now, the, the bad news is, and you'll notice in 2013, we haven't made a lick of progress since about 2003. Really, 2003 isn't the magic number. It's really more around the year 2000. Um, it, missions was just doing this exponential rocket um, to the stratosphere on, on its effectiveness, and, and the church was getting mobilized and going out and preaching the gospel. And then somewhere around the year 2000, it just nosedived, flatlined, and basically ground to a halt. Nobody really knew why. There's some theories out there. Some people say it was Y2K or Christians were expecting Jesus to return in the year 2000 because he can only return on a round number. And so we, we kind of hunkered down and thought, well, we'll just wait it out now. We, we did good, pat ourselves on the back. We went out and we did missions and we were really effective and yay us. And now Jesus is coming back. Well, he didn't. Um, so, you know, we're like, oh, poor us. Now we got another thousand years to wait because he can only return on a round number. Um, and so, like, the, the focus on missions is like, oh, it's okay. Got another thousand years. Eh, procrastinate, right? Um, so who knows what the real reason is, but those are some ideas. The silver lining is now looking at the historical waves uh, of missions, we're starting to see that we're shifting gears. And it's not so much the church stopped, even though the church did stop. <laughs> it's kind of like pushing the clutch and, and you have that moment of pause as you shift to the next gear, re-engage, and launch out even faster and more powerful, right? Unfortunately, this, this shifting of gears has taken a little bit longer than we would like, but what I can tell you is that we are shifting gears. <laughs> and the gear that we are shifting into, if we look at historical data, will be exponentially greater than the gear that we were in previously. And the gear we were in previously saw more people give their life to the Lord than the previous almost 2,000 years combined. So this next season, this fourth wave of missions, is going to be, oh my gosh, awesome. Like, lay down your small ambitions and go out on the mission field because God is going to be doing such amazing and incredible things in and through our lives in this next season that we won't even know what normal life looks like. Nor will we be even caring that we don't know what normal life looks like. We're going to be so caught up in the task and the power of the movement of God across this world that Netflix, who cares? What's going on in the news? Who cares? The fact that I don't have uh, a job? Who cares? God is moving. That's going to be our attitude. Whether you like it or not, and whether you believe that or not, trust me, as we move forward in this period of time, God has this really good habit of shaking us up, rattling us, smacking us around, and getting us in line with his plan, right? So it's in our benefit to get in line with his plan rather than resist, because that just usually doesn't end well. But um, it's just, it is so exciting what we are about to encounter in the world today. Not because I'm prophesying or telling you what the future holds, but because I'm looking at what God has been doing and just extrapolating the data, right? Not only that, though, we're going to look at Scripture and see what it has to say about this. We are on an accelerating timeline. 
An acceleration means that each moment that you move forward, you are moving faster than the moment previous, right? It's, it's not linear growth, it's exponential growth. That's an accelerating timeline. And there's a really easy analogy, not that I came up with, but what the Bible says to give us an idea of what this accelerating timeline looks like. And it's called labor. Some of you may be unfamiliar with this. Guys aren't going to have an intimate knowledge of this, but some of you might have, uh, might have enough, at least, uh, mental knowledge of this uh, to kind of put the pieces together. But let's read some scripture. John 16, 19 through 21. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said, A little while and you will not see me, and then again in a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that that child has been born into the world. All right? So Jesus is using this terminology of a woman in labor. But that's not the only place. First Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, uh, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well what the day of the Lord uh, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Romans eight nineteen through twenty three. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves also, having the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Mark 13:8. For a nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So this, throughout Scripture, this... This metaphor of a woman in, in labor shows us what this, this accelerating timeline looks like, all right? Because there's parallels between conception, gestation, contractions, and birth, okay? Some of you might be aware of this. Some of you might not. But, uh, you know, you get married and you, uh, you, uh, you know, <laughs> that. And um, sometimes that uh give, gives uh gives a little bump in the in the stom- stomach there and i'm not going to go into the birds and bees right now but um you know there's conception and it happens and you don't even really know it happened right not until a couple months later and then a blue line shows up and you're like oh my gosh that just happened uh i had a little experience with that shock um and <laughs> And then, and then you go out and buy another pregnancy test just to make sure, you know. <laughs> shake it away, just shake it away, you know. Um, but it happened, right? And, uh, <laughs> uh, 
And so, but you didn't know it. It was like this slow beginning, and it wasn't until months later that you even realized, oh my gosh, uh, something's on its way, you know? But then it's another like six or seven months before anything really happens. I mean, you know it's on the way. Your wife is getting slightly larger than she used to be, and you're going to the doctor and hearing heartbeats. And so you're, you're aware that your life is about to radically change, but you have no clue what you're really about to get yourself into, you know. Um, and you're just kind of blissfully unaware until your wife calls you from the mall and says, Honey, I'm going into labor. And you're like, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, you know. Um, and we had, a, we had a home birth, uh, a water birth in, in our bedroom. And so I, I was a part of the entire um, process. And I was the one cleaning up all the afterbirth and cutting the cord and pulling the baby out and all this stuff. And really, really fun times. I didn't pass out or anything like that. But, but so I, I didn't personally experience this, but I have enough intimate knowledge of this topic to, to say that for nine months, it was pretty easy going. Not a whole lot on my radar. Get the call, and just like the pregnancy test, I'm in denial. No, no, no. You're not going into labor, you know. Um, this isn't happening. Just come home, you know, we'll wait this out, no problem. Um, no, her hour had come. She gets home, she's huffing and puffing, you know, and, uh, you know, things get dramatically more interesting in that moment than they had been in the previous nine months. Uh, you're thinking nine months, oh, I got this, no problem, I've got time. Yeah, I'm going to be a father, no problem. Yeah, I'll, I'll get that when it happens. And then she starts huffing and puffing, and you realize, oh, crap. <laughs> like, this is happening now. Did I prepare enough? Do I... Am I really going to be able to coach her through this? Is she really going to punch me when, when this gets intense? You know, all these all, things get dramatically more interesting. And that is the exact analogy that Jesus used of the end times. Like, I created the world, okay, thousands of years ago. The Old Testament lasted a long time, and there were, yes, some hiccups and some amazing things that happened there, but they were over a long period of time. People did not encounter God on a daily basis. And so they pushed it off, and they pushed it off. And But the closer and closer that we come to the hour of Christ's return, the more and more exciting and scary and bloody and messy and oh my God, oh my God, oh my God uh, attitude we kind of get because it's about to happen. He came first time, fulfilled over 300 prophecies, you know, um, and... Uh, things started to get a little bit more interesting. But now we're moving into this season that Jesus prophesied about, that the Old Testament prophets prophesied about, that we're getting into this season that the labor pains are about to begin. <laughs> and with the good also comes the, the unpleasant and uncomfortable. But Jesus promises in that day when the child is born, you will forget all the pain you'll no longer even care about what happened during that, that time because of the joy of the child. And can I please get an amen? Jesus is coming back and it's going to be worth it all, okay? But in the meantime, we have this amazing season of contractions that we get to deliver a baby. We get to roll up our sleeves 
and catch, you know? Um, no, it's not quite that passive. We're, we're actually going to be doing the ones, we're actually going to be the ones doing the pushing. We're not on the receiving end. So, um, but like we have this incredible, incredible season that we're coming into, and I want to read about it. I'm not just talking fluff here. This is in Scripture. Joel 2, 25-32. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. All right? In other words, there's going to be a time that not much is happening and you're going to be lost. Things are going to not be going your way. Okay? We're talking about Israel here, and I'm going to show you how this is fulfilled. But we're looking at church history, and there was a huge gap of time where nothing was happening. Okay, But God said, I'm going to make that up. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord, your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. It will come about after, about the, sorry, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants I will pour out my, pour out my spirit, um, says um, the Lord in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. God is saying, just wait. Yes. There's all this time. There was these nine months of gestation while that baby was growing in the womb, but not a whole lot seemed to be happening. But I'm going to restore to you your, your unproductivity. I'm going to restore to you power. I'm going to restore to you everything that you thought you lost, and I'm going to exponentially increase it. I'm going to do more than you ever thought possible. There's going to be more people who come to know me. You will never be put to shame again. And what do you know? He's speaking of Israel here. 1948, Israel is reborn. Before then, they were a people despised and put to shame. For thousands of years, they had no home. <laughs> it, 1948, Israel is reborn, and now we know in, in, uh, through pr- prophetic text, Revelation says that many armies will come against Israel. None shall prevail. Jesus said, clear, God said, clear back in Joel, you will come back, I will restore to you, and you will never be put to shame again. All right? What do you know, during this same season of prophecy being fulfilled, 1950 to 2000, more people come to Christ than in the rest of history combined. The gifts of the Holy Spirit have been revived in this historical season. The church was moving in power in the early days and then went dormant for so long. But as soon as we started moving in missions again, the Holy Spirit came back with power and we start seeing things that haven't been seen in thousands of years. We are on the cusp of something here. God is doing. He is moving. He is moving us into this next season for a reason and for a purpose, and that's because he's coming back. The labor pains, the contractions are going to get more intense and with greater frequency the closer the time comes for that child to be born. And so what we saw that took hundreds or thousands of years in the past is going to take days in the future because they're getting more intense. God is coming and he has to speed up 
his redemption plan of mankind so that the big finale can come. This, oh, also, um, natural disasters are increasing just as Jesus prophesied of the last days. Almost every year is a record-setting year for natural disasters in the news today. Almost every single year. There's a, a YouTube channel that I highly recommend. It's a YouTube user. I can give you his, his information. You can look it up and watch. But his entire YouTube channel, all he does is every month he takes news footage and, and uh, stories from around the world and compiles them in one 10 or 15-minute clip and shows you the ridiculous things that are going on around the world every single month. This isn't like having to consolidate a year's worth of news. It's like every month there's enough craziness happening that you just sit back and watch for a few minutes, and you're like, holy crap. I mean, holy crap. Well, some of them that are like just uh, fresh on my mind right now is that in China, an entire river turned red like blood. Poisoned the river. They couldn't drink of it. In Australia, there was something that I had never even heard of before, except from the Bible. There was a fire tornado in Australia. It wasn't wind that was in a cyclone pattern. It was fire. It was a furnace spinning, ravaging through the Australian outback. Like, I'd never even heard of that before, except when God led the Israelites out of Egypt with the pillar of fire and smoke, right? Um, but it's like crazy things are happening all around the world. And Jesus said, be on the lookout for these signs. These disasters will increase in, in frequency and potency, but do not be dismayed. These are just birth pangs. These are just signs that, that my second coming is, is near. This culminates, all of this pro- prophecy culminates in Revelation 6, 12 through 17. And it says, I, look, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. Does this sound familiar? This is a direct fulfillment of this Joel passage we just read. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? You see, These first six seals of Revelation are not judgment. They are God trying to get our attention. And by the sixth seal, he has succeeded. (laughs) It says, every man, woman, child on the earth hides themselves because they know full well that God is there. There is no longer the question of, does God exist? Atheists no longer exist at this point in time. Everyone knows that God is there, and everyone knows that his wrath and judgment is coming. Now, for most of the world, that's a really scary thing. For those who believe, that's a really joyous thing. 
Jesus already bore that wrath for us. We're not going to have to be worrying about that. But God has called us to be light in this incredibly dark hour of man's history. And we know from from the next passage we're going to read in in Revelation uh, that this is a season where the greatest harvest the world has ever known comes to pass. Where there is no vision, the people perish, Proverbs uh, 29.18. What is missional Christianity? What is the purpose of the church? I can tell you, the purpose of the church is to fulfill the Great Commission. The only reason Jesus left us here for the past 2,000 years is because he wanted us to complete the task which he started, which is to redeem all mankind. Now, not, unfortunately, not all mankind will be redeemed because God can't override their free will, but he, we must give them the opportunity. The purpose of the bride of Christ, the purpose of the church is to prepare the way for Christ's return, to go and make disciples of all nations, to fulfill the work that Jesus began, and to equip and prepare the spotless bride of Christ. This is the whole reason we exist as the church. So what is the fourth wave of missions then? What does it look like? Well, it's the call to all. In this wave, we will see all ages will be involved. It is no longer for adult professionals. Now, it was never just for adult professionals, but that's unfortunately kind of the the role that it took. We kind of developed these structures within the church and these rules that said, well, first you have to go to Bible school, then you have to go to seminary, then you have to be a pastor for X number of years, then you have to learn a certain language, then you have to be sent to a country that you're not even called to. And then, you know, in your gray years, if you've survived all of that, doing all this ministry that you never felt God call you to, then we'll actually put you in the role and calling that you do feel God called you to. This is ridiculous. It's unbiblical. Jesus released his disciples immediately, not after they were ready, mind you. (laughs) Because we all know that the disciples were not ready when Christ left. He, He left them with a lot of feeling of, oh my gosh, how? What? You want me to do what? You know, they did not feel equipped. He said, I'm sorry, you're never going to feel equipped. That's why the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. It's going to be me doing the work. I'm just using you as the vessel. Can you handle that? And for the most part, we all say no. (laughs) But all ages are going to be involved. Just like John was probably a teenager when he was called to be a disciple of, of Christ, just like Timothy was a very young person, probably late teens, early 20s, uh, when when he was called by Paul, like all age groups are going to be involved in this. It is no longer just the old gray-haired people that can, can be missionaries. It will be greater than the student volunteer movement of the second wave, which launched 100,000 young people into the mission field. It's going to be greater than that. And we know that just from history. All nationalities. The typical missionary will no longer be a white Protestant. Okay? Sounds funny, but up until the turn of the, uh, the millennium, for the most part, during since the days of the early church, there was myth, mixed ethnicity there, obviously. But when Roman Catholicism came onto the scene, Christianity basically got isolated to Europe, and it became a white man's religion. Well, that changed as then we got back into missions and getting the gospel out there. And around the turn of the millennium, there are now more Christians of other ethnicity than there are white. It's no longer a white man's religion. There's more Christians in the rest of the world than there are in Europe or the West. Uh, And so we're seeing that it's not just white guys that have to go out and and do mission work anymore. It's actually 
increasingly going to be Africans or Chinese or Thai or whoever. These are going to be the, the people that are on the forefront of missions. Now, that does not excuse anyone in this room. Please hear, hear me when I say that. And I happen to be about the whitest guy you can possibly be, and I still feel called the missions. Um, but we're, it's no longer going to be isolated to the traditional people group that we've, we've seen. Every sphere of society, missions is no longer a religious activity, okay? What I mean by that is that there are seven spheres of influence in our society. Government, religion, family, economy, education, media, and celebration. Celebration includes like sports and events and everything that we gather in large numbers to witness. Um, God is calling us to redeem all of these areas, not just the religious sphere. So... All of us are called to be missionaries. The only question is, where are you called to do that? What is your mission field? And I'm, also, I'm not saying that just because you're currently involved in a certain sphere of society right now, that doesn't just automatically mean that's where God has called you. <laughs> God's going to be shaking up his body. Bones are going to get shifted around, get back into joint. We're going to have to be shifting and actually start doing what God has called us to do rather than what we would like to do with Jesus sprinkled on top, right? Um, but for the most part... You know, there's no divide between secular and sacred. All of these are mission fields. It's not just me going to Africa or me going to China or me going here doing that. That is necessary still. There's still thousands of people groups who have not heard the gospel, so we must still do that. But it's both and, not either or. And that's the problem that's been in the past. It's been either or. People say, oh, well, I'm called uh, to stay. Well, great, hooray for you, but you've got a crap load of work that God has called you to do as you stay, not just opt out of the Great Commission, okay? Go back. Um, so every sphere of society, it's relational ministry. In other words, going back to Jesus' model, we're, we need to deinstitutionalize the church. Lost people don't need an institution, they need a person, they need a friend, they need a relationship. And so we need to drop structures and denominations and hierarchies, and we need to get out there and be friends to the lost. That is how Jesus did his ministry, okay? And that's how we need to be doing our ministry. Just to give you an idea, all the people, the missiologists and people that are involved in this study and stuff, right now they're saying in the fourth wave, what we're probably going to see in America, just America, is 80 million people come to know the Lord and over 200,000 new missionaries sent out overseas. To give you some context, right now in the entire world, across every nation, every uh, church denomination, including Catholics, there's only about 450,000 missionaries that exist currently on the field today. Out of the roughly 2 billion people who calls them, call themselves Christians, which equates to something like, even though we're all called to be missionaries and engage in, in the, uh, the, the Great Commission, right now, statistically, about uh, two, two one-thousandths of one percent of Christians are actually engaged in the Great Commission. So this is going to get ramped up. <laughs> Those statistics are going to shift dramatically as the church wakes up and realizes, this is my call, and it is right now. The wife is called. Labor is, uh, is undergoing. I can no longer put it off until tomorrow. This is happening now, whether I like it or not, and whether I feel ready for it or not. God is going to be shaking and waking up his church 
to get this job done so that he can return. Why? Because the kingdom is at hand. The task. If you are a Christian, then you are a missionary. If you are a Christian, then you are discipled to disciple. In other words, you are born pregnant. There is no, um, this is not a spectator sport. You do not come to church every Sunday just so you can pat yourself on the back for being a righteous religious person and hear a good sermon from Richie or any other person. The only reason we gather like this is so that people can be discipled and mentored so that eventually they can graduate from Kitty College and actually go out and do the work, right? But unfortunately, we kind of have this just existing mentality where we just come to church because it's the right thing to do. We just come to church to go to church to go to church to go to church, and there's never any progress in our spiritual lives. You don't go to college just to go to college, just to go to college, just to go to college, and then die still going to college. The only reason you go to college is so that you can get out of college so that you can actually be productive with that degree and hopefully do whatever you think you need to do with that magical piece of paper. But it's a season that we are learning so that we can go and then apply what we have learned, right? And that's what church is supposed to be, to disciple people so that they get to the level so they can go and go disciple others. It's a multiplication process. But unfortunately, we've become stagnant to where it's just a religious activity that we do every Sunday. And nobody's growing. I know people who have sat in church their entire lives and couldn't point out even the most basic tenets of Christianity in the Bible. They still need the pastor to spoon feed it to him. We have got to get out of that and moving into taking on our role and responsibility as a productive member of the body of Christ. The question is not of role. We are all... Sorry, the question is of role, not calling. We're all called. There is no opt-out clause. Jesus didn't say, some of you I've called to go spread the gospel all nations. He said, I've called my church. That's the entire purpose you exist, is to complete the task which I have left for you. Not a single one of you get to opt out. Not a single one. It's just a question of role. What is your role in the body of Christ? Are you a hand? Are you a foot? Are you an eye? Are you whatever, you know? But you have to ask yourself that. Go to God and ask him that. And then be faithful to whatever he tells you to do. And there's no, you know, just like Paul said, there's no comparing the body parts. Oh, well, so-and-so, he has this nice glamorous role, or I'm just called to do this, you know? doesn't matter. All that matters is if, are you faithful with God has told you to do. Are you fulfilling your design and role and function in the body of Christ or not? Acts 1.8, Jesus said, When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The key word there, well, there's lots of key words, but one of the key words there is and. It's and, 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 not or, and not then. It's not a stepping stone. It's not, well, I'll start doing um, you know, evangelism here in Las Vegas, and then once I get good enough, then I'll move on to, to maybe other parts of Nevada, and then after that, maybe the nation. And then if you know, I've really got it, my ducks in a row, then maybe I'll go overseas. No, it's and, 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 not or. It's not either or. It's all at the same time. Now, some of you might be saying, well, I'm working on my omnipresence, but I haven't really got it down yet. How do I do that? This is how. You can give in your time, in your prayer, 
your finances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'll give you an example just from my own personal life. Even though I'm the, <laughs> the traditional white Protestant missionary, um, like I make sure that I'm involved in other spheres as well. While my primary focus is training and discipling and going overseas, at the exact same time, I make sure that I'm tithing to the local church giving money and finances to other missionaries because I want to multiply whatever God is doing and I want to invest in all these different areas. I will pray for other missionaries. I will support them in any way that I can. I will send money to them if at all possible. Um, I will raise up other people if I can't get the money together and there's a need. I will go to other people and say, hey, there's a need on the field. Can you, will you partner with me, etc., etc., etc.? But my primary focus is the role that God has called me to. But that doesn't mean that I neglect or ignore all the other roles and all the other uh, portions of the body that are at work. I support them. I pray for them. I finance them. I do whatever I can because I want to encourage other parts of the body and not just be my own one-man show, right? I'm not saying that's what you have to do. I'm just giving you an example from my own uh, personal life. Um. The purpose and the motivation. It's this, this combination, purpose and motivation. Jesus is coming back. The disciples ask Jesus, when will the end come? And we all like the popular response of, no man knows the hour. And so we kind of have this, this fatalistic, oh, it'll happen when it happens, say la vie kind of attitude about it. But that is not at all what Jesus was communicating. In both Matthew 24:14 and Mark 13:10, Jesus gave a very uh, specific response. And he said this, "This gospel of the kingdom must first be preached to all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come." In other words, this is a participatory sport. Jesus said, "No man knows the hour because that hour is actually flexible." Just like labor, you can do things to help or hinder labor. The child is going to be born whether you like it or not eventually, but there are things you can do to speed up that labor or things you can do to slow down that labor. So I'm told. I haven't experienced it. But Jesus said, look, if you get your, your butt in gear and you go and, and do the thing that I told you to do, that's going to speed my return. If, on the flip side, you do what you've been doing and you've been lollygagging and hanging out in Jerusalem when I told you to get out into the world and you went through a 1,500-year period where you barely did missions at all, well, guess what? That's kind of going to hinder my return. He said, you go, preach the gospel, and when all people groups have heard it, then I will return. The timing is, the onus is on us. Now, God, in his sovereignty, has the grand master plan in mind and he's ever so generous that when he sees us lollygagging, he's going to put that fire back under us by bringing some more persecution and some more end times uncomfortabilities. But it's not because he's angry, it's because he wants us to succeed and he wants this stinking contraction mess to end so that he can come and set it all right again. It's because he loves us, not because he's out for us. But that, that's tough love sometimes. <laughs> but are we going to partner with God and hop on this train of redemption? Or are we going to get run over by it? Because we're obstinate and will not yield to the Holy Spirit. 
the apostles, uh, Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's near. It's like it's right there. You can partner with it and you can bring it to pass. All the apostles, almost every single New Testament letter that was written had this, this, this language of Jesus' return is imminent. It's like so close you can taste it. And yet we have withdrawn from that concept and that teaching and we have this laid-back, nonchalant attitude of, oh, if it happens, it happens. But it doesn't really concern me. There's not a whole lot I can do about it. Quite the opposite. That is a fatalistic view and that is Islamic worldview, not Christian worldview. The hour is upon us. We must act not just from looking at Scripture and what it was prophesied would happen that would be signs of the labor pains, but we see from history that God, the Spirit of God is ramping up, that those labor pains are getting more intense and more frequent. We cannot deny the fact that we are in this season. Revelation 7, 9, and then skipping 13 through 14, we see the outcome of this. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne before the lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. In other words, missions is getting more and more and more and more and more intense and upscale and, and, and effective. And then when the poo really hits the fan, more people will come to know the Lord than have ever come before because all the distractions, all the jobs, all the excuses, all the other world views that people use as excuses or you know whatever, saying God's not there or Christianity isn't it, all those are going to be stripped away. God's hammering us with the reality of his presence. And in seal six, the whole world will know God is there. God is just. God is coming for me. Am I going to get on board <laughs> or get run over? God is coming back. The greatest harvest the world has ever seen will come during the tribulation. That's incredible considering what we've seen in the last 50 years. It's only going to get more intense. It's only going to become more glorious. And God is only going to, uh, his fame is only going to be spread faster and faster. The amazing thing about the task at hand is that all these guys, all this study, all this look at history and evaluating the data and seeing what task is left for us, all these guys are saying the same thing. The fourth wave of missions will be the last. This is the wave that will complete the Great Commission. This is the wave that will usher in the return of Christ. And they know that not because they've just pulled numbers out of their butts, but because they've looked and seen the historical data. They've seen what task is left and they've extrapolated saying, well, if we were able to accomplish this much in the last 50 years and it's growing exponentially, then this will be a piece of cake 
it's not even a chore at this point. Like everything is in place. We have the people. We have the resources. We have the ways and means to do it. We just got to kick the church's butt into gear and it will practically do itself. This is the last wave. These signs will escalate. The labor will intensify. And whether you like it or not, and whether you're prepared for it or not, I am going to confidently tell you right now (laughs) that this could very well be the generation that sees Christ's return. But the question is not, oh, are you date setting? Are you this or that? Are you? No. I'm saying if we engage and fulfill what God has told us to do, then this is the last generation. It is. The only question is, will we engage or not? Will we prioritize the kingdom of of heaven or not? The onus is on us. But God is on the move, and he is ready and willing and able to bring this sucker to pass and birth this baby. (laughs) Are we going to help or hinder him? So what is my task? Well, for the last seven years, I've been on the mission field, training, discipling, this and that, with Youth of the Mission. All of that has been great. It's been fun. It's been wonderful. But it's all just been preparation for what I truly feel God has called me to do and what YWAM leadership has now <laughs> asked me to do. And that is to go to churches and get them on fire and get them on board with fourth wave missions, train them in how to do fourth wave missions, and get this ball rolling so that Jesus can come back. Okay? That is my task. That's, <laughs> oh boy, you know. Um, but that is what I've been asked to do, and that's what I'm soon going to be leaving to do. You can ask me when, I can tell you I don't know. You can say where, I will tell you I don't know. Um, but it is happening. It could be this week, it could be next week. I don't know. Uh, similar to your building situation, you know, you're just kind of kind of waiting for, for the moment when God's going to reveal it to you. But um, we're going to be leaving very soon possibly to Kentucky, possibly to Texas, um, but the whole point is to get these, these mobilization schools and, and training up pastors, et cetera, et cetera, training up local churches in this, um, and then going out and doing it all over again in another church and sending them overseas and giving them the, the support and this and that to, to get this job done, okay? So I'm really super stoked and excited about that, as daunting and uh, requiring of me as it's going to be, um, but that's really what I feel God, uh, that, that is why I feel I was born, <laughs> okay, is to revive and equip the church for this final harvest. That's the only reason I feel I was even born, okay? And there's a big story behind that, but I mean, this, this is amazing, this is exciting. Unfortunately, it's going to lead to a more mobile lifestyle for me, my wife and my son, uh, a lot more moving and getting, going to places, doing things, so you may be seeing a little less of me than, than you're used to. Um, that might be a blessing or I don't know. Um, but we are of you and we want to be sent out by you. Um, so we really want you to follow us and support us. And by support, I mean in the fourth wave, um, full meaning of that. Not just, can you write me a check? It's, will you participate? Will you engage uh, in our pastoral care? Will you pray with us? And yes, will you uh, financially support us? Um, you can, uh, I got a table set up in the back. You can sign up just for our, our newsletter. You can also go to my website, joshuastatum.com. 
like I said earlier, you can get lots of resources and PowerPoints and teachings, and as well as our newsletters and, and news and updates and information there. Um, and that, that'll be getting more and more um, regular as well. Um, you can also sign up in the back uh, to support us. And there's three different options on there. You can sign up to support in prayer, in pastoral care, or financially. So whatever way you feel God is calling you to. Um, again, uh, the website. Uh, there's also books back there, not for you to purchase. Um, I just have like recommended reading lists. If you want some more information on some of the stuff I've been talking about, uh, this morning, I have a recommended reading list uh, and just a few books back there that you can like look at and have some face time with. Um, but that, that's, that is the season <laughs> that me and my wife are, are about to launch in, and we would really, really, really appreciate your partnership in prayer. Um, so with that, I'm going to call Bill up, uh, take the missions offering, and uh, bless you guys, and thank you so much.